Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, Rebecca. We have a really interesting and slightly heavy podcast for today. It is slightly heavy, and sometimes those are the best ones with the best content, honestly. Yeah. We get so many questions about a particular location in the city of Anoka, and those questions get even more frequent in September and October, and we thought we'd pop on here and make it our podcast episode to talk about the Anoka State Hospital. Because we get so many inquiries during the Halloween season, we'd like to take this opportunity to present the story of the people that lived there as people. One of the things that we are extremely aware of that is one of our missions is to tell the story of the people of Anoka and the county that surrounds Anoka. And their story is one of being human. And sometimes that human existence doesn't fit mainstream society in whatever capacity. And I think um, you're talking about how that they just didn't have any agency about being there. And so when people ask us questions about um, paranormal activity at the state hospital, that doesn't really feel to fit the mission of our historical society. Yes. There's so much sadness that surrounds the state hospital because of people going there that didn't have the choice to go there, people going there that weren't getting the correct treatments that we know would help them today, Um, doctors that were trying their best but didn't have the technology. There's so much sadness and anger and drama that surrounds the state hospital that to look into it as a paranormal existence is just really detrimental to the people as a a whole. And the individuals, like it, so many people don't know the history of it either. Uh, It started as the first state asylum for the insane, sort of this in 1900, this idea that it was a place to care for people and put people and they're not really coming out. And they built it on this cottage system in the way that they thought was the, the best, newest way to treat those who were mentally ill in our society. It's really interesting to see the changes of new mental health practices come through. Within this interview that we do, they, they mentioned the burning of the straitjackets. Do you want to Tell us a little bit more about that. On October 31st, 1949, our governor, Young Dahl, came to Anoka and he went to the Anoka Halloween parade first, but he came to the um, state hospital and they had piled this huge um, collection of straight jackets on the state hospital grounds and he symbolically lit a torch to them. He said this bonfire contains 359 straight jackets, 196 cuffs, 91 straps, and 25 canvas mittens. 
These restraints were removed from the patients, not by administrative coercion, but by the enlightened attitudes of the superintendent, staff, and employees. And this was a symbolic action that these were not the best practices for helping their patients. And, you know, that that makes it sound so enlightened and wonderful, like we turned a new corner. But interestingly enough, 1949 is the year they started doing lobotomies. And that went on for, you know, about 10 years. And using new medications to restrain people in ways that they didn't really understand. Our interview today is with a woman named Karen Seward. She, as a student nurse, worked at the state hospital and then um, took a job there for about two years in the early, early 1960s. And so during this oral history that was recorded in 2014, she talks about her experience there and her experience afterwards in trying to create a safe place for the patients and their lasting memory. So we should warn our listeners that there is some graphic language talking about things like lobotomies and shock treatments, um, overcrowding, um, and the the general treatment of the patients that was witnessed. Um, So if that's not something that interests you on an academic level, um, you know, maybe just skip this one and carry on to our next podcast episode. I'm Neil Holton, Mm -hmm. and this is uh, the 18th of April, Mm -hmm. 2014. And we're here um, as part of the Anoka County Historical Society's Oral History Project Mm -hmm. for Anoka State Hospital. Thank you for coming in. I'm talking with Karen Seward. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and went to school? Mm -hmm. Sure. I grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota, and I always wanted to be in the helping profession. That was my goal. After high school, well, actually before I graduated, I was on New Year's Eve, I was riding in the car with my date on the way home, and I heard an an advertisement that the state of Minnesota put on the uh, radio. I'd never heard it before, and if I wouldn't have had that radio on, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, I heard that they had a, uh, an LPN program and that it was reasonable and affordable and that was one thing that was a problem with me because I didn't have any funding to go to college and yet I wanted to. So anyway, it, it, it was uh, something new. It was a, an LPN program, it was a pilot program for five years and, uh, and then they, they said it was reasonable. It was the first program ever in the state that had the psychiatric aspect included in their LPN program. And so, and that this was the fifth year I found out that the program had been, so of course we were the last graduating class. So um, anyway, I'd completed that, and that, that's been it as far as education, except for classes. And where was that? Well, it was held at Anoka State Hospital. Uh, that was part of the, uh, that was probably a little over half of the um, place where we spent our time. And at the state hospital, it, um, it included uh, basic nursing, where we would learn how to get bed baths, that type of thing, in the geriatric section, where they had older people that were quite ailing in the state hospital. And, uh, and then the rest of it was a lot of psychiatric um, uh, learning you know, experience with our patients there. And, um, oh, and then I might just say that 
what was so nice about it was that they had a big dormitory and uh, it was right on the river and it, it housed nursing from us and then nursing from Gustavus Adolphus I think they had and maybe even a rehab department and so all those people were there learning from the psychiatric patients along with their other you know things later we had two to a room and it was free <laughs> and how long was the program the program was 14 months and what year did you finish up? Um, I enrolled in September of 1960, and then I finished up in 61, but I'm not sure. I brought this to just show how simple that things were back then. When I called and asked for information regarding this, this is what I got. It's just a, like a, a copy of, you know, like a mimeograph, they used to call it. And it would tell, it told all the things about the, um, the place and uh, all the data. Could you read off the title? Um, yes, Handbook for Practical Psychiatric Nursing Students. Um, Anoka State Hospital and it begins September 1960. The price in the beginning was 170. They crossed that out, they lowered it to 120. I mean, quite affordable, you know. So that, I just thought, well, this is for me. I <laughs> for the tuition? For the tuition. Yes, and then the other thing that was stated was that um, if we worked a year at the facility or at one other state hospital in the, uh, in the state, that we would get $25 a month to help us, like have other costs, you know, that were incurred while you're there. But there weren't that much, so I decided to do that because I uh, right off decided that this was something that I really could enjoy and I, I had a heart for. So the, the uniforms were fairly uh, formal then, huh? Yes, yes, they were formal. That We had pinafores and little white uh, shirts and then the caps that the nurses used to wear in the old days. And they had to be, everything there was laundered by the laundry. The laundry was a big part of this facility because they, they laundered all the patients' things. They laundered all of ours. And uh, I think they, they used those hot press type things because they had wrinkles <laughs> and what have you. But did you eat with the, the patients in the You know, that's an interesting hall? question because um, we did not. There, there are 10 big cottages there, and then there's like uh, seven that were involved with patients. Four were female, three were male cottages. And um, some of the people could go down to a general dining room but for the most part, they brought the meals out to the patients. It depended. I mean, I worked on a unit where there was 110 people in there, uh, and they were in the locked unit, all female. And so a lot of them couldn't, couldn't do that. But anyway, they, they had, like, they would have a little truck, and then they had wheeled in things where they would, you know, give the patients meals, especially the ones that couldn't go anywhere. Um, and then there was a dining room there that we were able to eat and uh, not have to pay any money. I remember one thing and that's homemade bread. I mean, they made homemade bread because it was reasonable and, and there were these skills for that then, you know. And uh, I remember another point that, that the state hospital patients were afforded half of the amount of money per day or per month than what the prison units were. And I, I just kind of went, oh, well, now why would that be? You know, I, know, I never did get an answer, but that's, that's the way it was, you know. But anyway, yeah, yeah, it was on the grounds. The grounds are huge and they're grassy and a lot of big old trees and um, park benches and, yeah. And did you go directly from 
being a student to working? Yes, a, I did. I worked almost two years there. Could you describe your work day? What I found when I started to work is that now I felt like an employee and I realized how bare bones the staffing is. You know, when you're a student nurse, you come in and you're, you're given instructions on what to do or how, what to attempt to do. And, uh, you know, I, I would try to relate to people to get them to come out of their shell because very many of them were overdosed with, you know, meds. And so uh, that was part of what I felt that was very important. I didn't have the time to do that anymore, you know, because when you're just a short few people. So then I really saw the benefit of what the student nurses had provided for the facility. Um, you could spend um, two full hours making medications up. I remember that very vividly because uh, that's a long time. It's a, it's a long time out of the day. And if you were the med nurse for the day, you know, besides doing the foot soaks and attending to other wounds or whatever, um, you would, you'd spend two hours per day doing meds. And uh, I was trying to think about, well, why would that be? Well, there's 110 of them. And then the other thing is, a lot of them tried to hide their meds and go spit them out. And I, they had found that, you know, over the years. And so, so what we did is we had this pestle thing, you know, like the pestle in the bowl or whatever they call it. But anyway, you had to crunch them, ground them up, and then we had lots of jelly. We put the jelly in there and mixed it all up. So, I mean, imagine that. And we had, they were placed in wood containers that were made, I think, by the hospital. We had a carpenter shop and everything. And then they'd have their little glass containers. And uh, that's why it took so long. But anyway, they were just lined up on this cupboard, one after another. So were most of the patients taking medications? I would say all of them. I would say all of them. And do you think they were helped by that? You know, um, before I came in the 60s, and I'm not sure of the date, the governor had come out and burned all the street jackets. Well, I think the part of the reason why he, they were able to do that was because they now had two biggies on hand as far as medications. One was Thorazine, one was Melaril. Those are the two that I remember. And then there were other varying things for whatever their conditions would be besides their mental health. Um, that we, had, we had like five or six people that had seizures and we would house them and, and bed them right on the floor with us so we could hear them during the night if they'd you know, gasp or holler out or you know, we could hear them to go to their uh, aid. So, I mean, there were some seizure medications. Um, uh, but anyway, what I found was that for, for a lot of them, it, I don't know that it helped them, but it helped them get along in a big facility with 110 people, which was difficult for anybody. But then for, you know, if you have a mental illness, uh, it's difficult. And so I, I found a lot of people that would just, you know, you'd get them all ready. Some of them could help themselves get dressed, but you'd, and then you'd put them in the day room, you know, and make sure they get a chair. And, uh, and then it would only be an hour or so and their heads were, were dragging and they were asleep. They were very, very drowsy. Um, so I think, to my estimation, I think that's what the side effects are of that the Thorazine. It might make them feel better, but it's also very, very much of a kind of a, relaxant drugs makes them sleep so anyway it and that kind of takes away the ability to do very much with them you know there were there were some rehabs uh, available I, myself I don't remember even ever bringing anybody to them but I have heard from other people that we had rehab there you know so anyway and then if you had behaviors well then you would go up to the seclusion room and 
they lock the door and they have a hole in the door about like this, a big wood heavy door. And they have a hole about like that, that you could observe the patients to make sure they were safe. And I don't remember how often we would do that uh, as far as the checking on them. But uh, that's where we'd bring their meal. And then of course, then the doctor would be called by somebody and uh, he would reevaluate and quite frankly, maybe they would get more medication, you know, to subdue them more. Because there weren't a whole lot of medications in those days, no big choices. I mean, they've done some good things with a lot of things, and then again, some of the side effects now for the, the poor folks aren't, aren't all that well good either. But anyway, that's what I think about the medications. <laughs> Was there a treatment plan for each patient? Well, what I remember is that maybe every couple months that one of the doctors uh, would, would uh, visit, and they'd just visit a certain number of people because of the huge, I mean, we had 1,100 people there total. And so uh, they would come and visit the person and then they would, yeah, if they could be interviewed, he'd interview them or she would interview them. We had men and women doctors. Um, and all the doctors were not psychiatrists. I know the head, head of the hospital was one. And what other kinds of treatments were used? Oh yes, well we had, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but we had shock treatment that was, uh, that was something that I felt, compared to nowadays, it was done inhumanely. Um, gosh, I see if I can recall about that. I, we would, whoever, well, okay, the people probably that had been in seclusion, you know, and if they can't, because when they gave them the medications and increased it, then they would get like anxiety and worse and their tremors and all that. So then they, that's what they would resort to when, when other things didn't seem to be working. They would resort to shock treatment. And so what we did is we brought them down to an area, I believe it was near like x-ray and, and lab, and it must have been an area where they had other people you know, that were medical. And, um, and they, they wouldn't give them any relaxant beforehand. They wouldn't give them a little something so they go to sleep. That's what they do nowadays. But they just uh, started, they put the things all on them and they were aware that this was gonna happen and then all of a sudden they had this big jolt. And I don't remember if it was once or more than once, I don't remember. But um, it, just to watch it was pretty, pretty horrifying, you know. And they, they, of course, had a fear of it because other people would talk about it to them and then they had experienced it themselves, so. Yeah, but in some cases it helped them for a while. I guess it was supposed to take away their, their memory of whatever was bothering them, you know. And some people had heard voices, some people had traumatic experiences and, you know, all those things maybe, and I'm not sure. I, I have no judgment. And then the, the, the worst, you know, for the ones that just cannot um, exist, you know, in a, in a situation like that, uh, they would do lobotomies. Now, I think most of them were done before I came but I, I do remember, I remember one patient who had had one, and so I got my impression from her, what it did for her. She, she was an, um, a very intelligent person, and she had been in the service, and she also was gay. And at that time, uh, people hardly even knew what that was, but that was part of her uh, distress and part of what she was going through, and so then that's what they did, is they gave her a lobotomy. And she had big dents in her head. I can't remember if they were up here or here. But anyway, she had big dents in her head from the uh, surgery. And uh, I 
I never saw an improvement in Mary, but of course I didn't know her before she had the lobotomy either. But she wasn't what you'd call intelligent at this time, you know, which before I had read in her chart that she had great intelligence. Um, she was one that was in in the uh, secluded area with just a cot and, and a hole to peep through, and then of course we'd bring the meals in. Um, she went on to, there was another woman there that was very, very acting out person, and uh, she, this woman put her finger in the door, in the hole, unbeknownst to us, of course, and then um, this was right after I'd left, and, and she bit her finger off. Mary did. So that's the biggest thing I remember that as far as, you know, behavior that uh, hurt, hurt others. Do you think there was an expectation that people would get better and be discharged? That's interesting you would ask that because I've always felt that uh, all the people that were admitted from say 1900 on, they all stayed there. They all died there. Very rarely did they get out because of the stigma and also because of the fact that they didn't have any medications to help them improve. Um, and I've heard from family members because I, I did a memorial and dedication at the old cemetery. And uh, I, I heard from one family when we had the dedication and then I heard from about four afterwards. And they all said the same thing, that they were unaware that they even had a, a great grandmother or a, or a grandma that were in that state hospital. And they had just found out in various ways. But this one last lady told me that her, her dad said, well, you know, we, she just went there and we, we never looked back and we never told anybody. Do you think there were people that shouldn't have been there? You know, I, I had several people who were, I felt I could talk with them and, you know, everyday conversation. and that I felt maybe could exist on the outside. Um, but of course, they never got the opportunity. Um, of those two years and 110 patients, I, when I think back, I think maybe I saw four discharged. And of the four, they were all young people. So therefore, you know, they, they had a better chance to get out. I think the others had been long forgotten, very few visitors. I, I volunteer at the Regional Treatment Center, which is the old state hospital now. And uh, they have many more visitors now. There's much, much less stigma. There's still stigma, but uh, there's much less than there was in those days. What were the conditions like with 110 people in one of the cottages, was it? Well, it was overcrowded. I'm not sure what they were made to have, but I'll tell you, it was overcrowded. Um, where they slept, this is what I always think about, is where they slept. Um, their beds were iron with a thin mattress, and they were body to body to body to body in a room that was probably twice as big as this room. You know, it was a really big room, but I mean, imagine trying to sleep with all those people, some snoring and probably some acting up. I, I don't know how they survived it. They got, they're survivors. They were survivors because they put up with a lot. They really did. And. Um, uh, as far as these, they had no bedside tables. You know, when you go to the hospital nowadays, you have at least have a bedside table, right? Where you can put your stuff in, and then your, like, toiletries. No bedside table. No closet. No closet. Nothing. Just bed to bed to bed. And there they were. And then the, their own clothes, very few of them had their own clothes. 
And we did, eventually we had a, um, what did they call it, a clothing room. And people would volunteer from the city to put clothes in there. And also the workers would do that too. They would put clothes in there. This is what my memories are. And then when we would have the shower day, it'd be, I don't know, every, I don't know how many days a week we, we had it, but you had to divide it up because there's 110 people. And so, and there's a few that couldn't shower. It was, a, it was a room, and it, I think it was a little smaller than this room, but it was a big area, and they had big shower things that were coming from both ends, and that, I think, was, was real traumatic. Um, some people just couldn't tolerate that, and you'd have to try to encourage them to... Uh, no privacy, group showering, indignities, you know, just standing around nude, looking at everybody else, and, uh, and then the clothing situation. You know, then you'd, you'd have to, while they're showering, you know, you'd have to quick try to match up the person to the size and make sure that you could get something for them to wear. How do you think the surrounding community views the hospital? Well, that's interesting. Um, I had a guy come and, and um, I know this is just situations, it's not everybody, but I had a guy come to uh, blow my driveway, you know, in the winter once, and, and I just happened to say to him something like, well, I have to go now, because I, I volunteer over at the state, at the regional treatment center, and he goes, oh, where the crazies are? <laughs> you know, I mean, I've gotten comments like that, which I clearly let them know that that's not appropriate. I mean, I didn't even hardly know the guy, but I mean, I just, I, that, I think that's one way we can help the stigma that people are called names, and there's certainly a lot of them out there. Well, then, the last thing that I, I ever uh, encountered was this last summer. I was replanting some of the shrubs that had uh, died in, in our landscaping piece, and then I was also putting in some flowers for color. And it was just about done, and there were two boys riding by on their bikes. Well, as I was approaching the gate, um, they dropped their bikes and, and they walked over and they were six going into seventh grade, these two boys were. And, uh, and that's what, what our conversation was. He said, hey lady, he says, do you know anything about this place? He says, I hear it was, I hear all those people are ones that committed suicide. And then they put them in the, in the graves. And I said, oh no, no, no. <laughs> 45 minutes later, they knew about stigma, what it did, and how they could be a, a good purveyor of, of another way of looking at these things. I showed them the gravestones. I showed them names, talked about the people that I remembered. I showed them two graves of people that were uh, in 19, well, I don't know what else, but anyway, they were before 1965 because that's when they quit marrying them there. But anyway, I showed them two people's graves that I knew the people. I remembered them well, and I told them a little bit about them. This lady was from Russia. She couldn't speak a word of English. You know, and oh, really? And with all those people? Ooh, wow. You know, and then, bef and then he, they wanted to know where the oldest, oldest one was in the group. So I took them way back to the far uh, edge at, at the south, and uh, we, we found the one from uh, 1900 was the first one that was buried there. And, uh, and then they, we talked about the round cement numbers that's all they had at that time was a number now that was all they had when they were buried i should say we had a chaplain there and he would come and do the service we had the carpenters they they did the boxes and so that was kind of the procedure and a few people maybe that knew him but while i was there i never really you know heard of those people or or a or a um, memorial but 
like I say, a couple of years after I left, then I see two that are, that are there. And once in a while I bring flowers and put on their graves. And I always greet them as they come in because they're right at the entryway. <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was a moving experience for me and I think a very uh, educational piece for these two boys. I said, well, I hope now when you, when you talk with your friends or anybody, you know, your parents even. He, one boy said, my mom said that that building back over there was used to cook chemicals to make medications <laughs> for the patients. And I said, oh gosh, you know, that, that was like a horticulture building. You know, so it's like, uh, I mean, I, when you think about what do people think, I think there's still a lot of under-knowledged uh, things out there. Do you think that changed when the new treatment center opened? I, I think that maybe that it did. Um, I try to tell people that now I think these people have a respectful abode to live in and uh, it's, it's much more comfortable. There's such a big difference. At the cemetery memorial, I was able to talk about what it was like then and what it's like now. And there's just a big world of difference. There was no respect with, you know, you had about this much room in between the cots, 110 people in one facility, three floors. Um, so anyway, I, I do believe that, that that certainly has helped. And it's certainly helped them too. Mm. The grounds are beautiful. There's like, um, six units all the way around a big circle. In the winter, they can walk around. Summer, they can go out and be in the sunshine, the fresh air, without having to be, worry about the railroad tracks or the river or the, the busy street out there, all these things that a few people did succumb to. I wouldn't say that there was a big number, but, mm. but there were some. Because, like I say, my unit with 110 and Cottage 7, they were locked. And we, get, we just were allowed the people that wanted to go down and do, uh, they, some of them had a job. One of them, I remember, made salads, you know, for the dietary, for the patients and the help and the, you know, and we didn't all eat together. That's, that is true. We didn't all eat together. We ate at separate times, the ones that did go down to the dietary. But anyway, um, uh, th there were several who had jobs that they considered something to look forward to every day. Elva Darby would get up at, um, six in the morning, dress, and be ready to go and make salads. And she loved her, the uh, chef or whatever, the guy in charge down there. I mean, she'd talk about him and, you know, it was really something for her to look forward to. And she was one that was fairly well, you know, and she'd been there for years. And then there was another th situation where I remember another job that made a di difference is um, a daughter that I met after the dedication, maybe about a month later, she read about it in the paper and she called me. We went out to the cemetery, found her dad, and she said he had troubles all his life, off and on. You know, he started out up north at um, some other state hospital. But she said he looked forward to getting up when he went back to Anoka because he took care of the horses. That was his job, and he loved it. And then, of course, at one point, they made the decision, the state did, that these people were no longer allowed to um, to do that, it might be uh, interpreted as, you know, slave labor, so to speak, or you know, that you're trying to get something out of them. Now that might be true nowadays because they're given a lot more therapy. They have a lot more classes and and a uh, lot more possibilities to help them and for them to get better. But back then, you know, that was probably the only thing that they had to look forward to. And, and she said that it was shortly later, she said he got real depressed then after that. And uh, 
she said she remembers that so clearly because he would mm -hmm. he would kind of brag about how he did such a good job. And, you know, all the cemetery was was a cyclone fence, and nobody could even see what it was. You know, they didn't know. And then the gate was Kitty Wampus. So when when the state decided finally to add markers with names and dates on each patient's grave, 400 markers. <laughs> I get choked up when I think about it. But anyway, they came down the hill and into the cemetery. It was just. It was just so moving because they were going to get their markers. So anyway, our group, the auxiliary, we decided we, we had a, um, a fellow who was a judge. He was a lawyer and a judge. And he came out to tour the hospital. And they had a volunteer coordinator then. She toured him the cemetery. And his impression was, this is terrible. You know, there's just no recognition. There's numbers. People would have no idea if they ever wanted to come and search. So he started our funding with, I, I believe it was $5,000 that he gave. And he said, if you ever have the opportunity. And she said, we call every year to the state to see if we can't get the funding for the markers for those patients. But they, they were more worried about the people, their, their um, people in their line, you know, the kids or the grandkids or whatever having a stigma about having those patients in there who are relatives of theirs. They were more worried about that than they were worried about them having the proper recognition of who they are and when they were born and when they were died and have their full name on there. Um, that was accomplished by a historical society. Vinoka had, um, had one person who worked on that a little over a year. His name was Dave Niles. And that helped us because when we were told that we could be the next hospital that could have those markers done, we had some of that work done. We had the, the book work, looking, matching up names, matching up the big log books at the hospital. Um, you know, there were like several names. Some people changed their names. I think maybe the family members they said did. So it was a big project. And we spent over a year in it. And then when we came on board, we spent 10 months working with this, and we, I went to the city, and we fundraised from businesses, and then we took our 5,000 we had, and we had a handcrafted, and it probably doesn't show up very good, but anyway, a handcrafted um, entryway gate at the front, two big panels, all of wrought iron, and then we had a paved entryway. Somebody pointed it out to me, well, we look at how the entryway is. So anyway, we have a beautiful entryway there now, pavers. And, uh, and then in the middle, the person who did the paving, they said, how about if you have something in insignia, you know, in the middle stating something? I said, that's a good idea. He had just learned about it the year before when he went to a class. So anyway, um, he said, figure out what you want, and I'll show you what, can, what we can do for $400. So anyway, remembering with dignity. That's what we put there. And it's right as you enter the gate, very prominent. And it was done. But all this was done barely. The, the, the uh, gateway was just, they were hanging it an hour before the, the ceremony. But anyway, and then all these, all these shrubs along. I had had a, a landscaper who did a good job, and he gave us the best bid. And so we really got a nice, wonderful area there front, if, to front it. And now the thing we're working on this year, this year is our, um, a sign. We want to have a big sign that we can put on the gate or on the, the uh, fence 
and then have that be acknowledged that these are people who were buried here, 400 of them, uh, without a name or a date. Uh, and now they are being respected with, with, what, with dignity, what they need. And they've got it. <laughs> They're beautiful markers. Thank you for oh, sharing your memories. Mm -hmm. Yes, they And are. for all the good you've done. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute. Hello, my name is Diana Nurberg, and I'm a librarian for the Anoka County Library System. I've compiled some great resources related to this episode's topic, the history of Anoka State Hospital. Let's get started. First, we have Poems from the Asylum by Martha Nash. This book is an anthology of poems written by an inmate at the St. Peter State Hospital for the Insane during the Great Depression. Accompanying Nash's poetry are photos and historical research edited, arranged, and introduced by the poet's granddaughter slash family historian, as well as her great-granddaughter. Next, we have The Crusade for Forgotten Souls, Reforming Minnesota's Mental Institutions, 1946 to 1954, by Susan Bartlett Foote. This book, the winner of the 2019 Minnesota Book Award for Minnesota Nonfiction, discusses some of the reforms that took place in Minnesota's mental institutions in the mid-20th century, including to the Anoka State Hospital. Next, we have Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry by Jeffrey A. Lieberman. The author of this book, former president of the American Psychiatric Association, offers an accessible history of the profession of psychiatry, from its troubled infancy to the evidence-based medical profession it is today. We hope you find these resources informative and enlightening. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. I appreciated Karen's efforts in really making that cemetery that's attached to the state hospital a place of remembrance. Yeah, I, I can't imagine being buried with only a number. And it, it was amazing that Dave Niles, you know, spent so much time matching up the numbers to the names and giving giving a legacy back to these people that had been basically imprisoned in this facility. I went to Anoka High School, and uh, if you drive up the driveway of Anoka High School, basically, the cemetery is on your left. I passed it every single day going to school and not really realizing the sensitivity of those um, graves that were there on the far, far edge of the state hospital grounds. It's unbelievable the number of lives that were concentrated there and that that grew things in the farm and, and made things, you know, when it was a, a more of an active institution, you know, before it, it got um, deinstitutionalized. Yeah, a, a lot of people wonder why the cemetery is all the way where it is. It's because that whole section between where you see the large buildings today and the cemetery next to Anoka High School, that was all the state hospital grounds. 
And, you know, we could put in the show notes is a link to the QCTV episode that we did on the state hospital. There was a little sliver in there about the farm that was on the property. And we've also got a really great map that shows the farm on that far edge. Yeah. And what they're doing in those early, early days through the 1960s, they're growing things to sell to help support the state hospital, but also to eat and use at the state hospital for the patients. Well, and like Karen was saying about how the the residents there found some meaning in work, gives you a literal reason to get out of bed in the morning. I know that there's so much growth that we've had in our conversations about mental health, uh, but we're still striving forward to understand and uh, even take other pieces of stigma away. There's still a lot of stigma out there in the world. Um, just knowing a few people that I do that struggle with their mental health, you know, it, it affects their employment. It affects their ability to have social interactions and maintain friendships. And they really feel like they're having to apologize for being who they are and how they move through the world. So I appreciate learning more about where we came from on these journeys as a culture dealing with mental health. Part of that is just making sure we tell the story. Thank you guys for coming along with us today and uh, getting some insight as to uh, why we have a ghost tour, but uh, we don't extend the ghost tour to one particular place. So thanks for being an advocate for us on that one as well. See everybody next time. Bye. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.